If you ever watched a pro rider pop out of the bunch with just a few hundred meters to go in an almost 200 kilometer race and win, you probably wondered how to do it and where on earth they come from. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of the Castelli podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, a person who is considered the best lead-out rider in the pro peloton. He has fulfilled this job for the likes of Mark Cavendish, Peter Sagan, Ilya Viviani, Alexander Kristoff, Sam Bennett and Fabio Jakobsen. Please welcome Michael Merkov of Sudel Quickstep. Yeah, it was a very hectic uh, final today. Um, it was very hard to stay organized like we wanted. Um, with a boulevard sprint like this, it's, uh, it's extremely uh, difficult, but um, we kept our head cold and, and stayed calm and uh, came to the front at the, at the right moment. We'll learn more about the influences that inspired him to take up cycling and set him on this remarkable path. Michael says that becoming a lead-out specialist was not initially a smooth ride. He describes his early bunch sprints attempts as a big mess, struggling to find his way in the fast-paced sprinting chaos. However, over the years, something shifted, and he evolved into the masterful lead-out specialist we know today. He even admits that while he finds it easy now, he still can't fully explain the gift that enables him to excel in this role. With a wealth of experience and confidence, Michael seamlessly maneuvers through the peloton, ensuring his sprinters in the best possible position before launching him into the crucial final meters going for the victory. We'll also get insights into Michael's favorite aero race suit and winter gear that will keep him warm and dry riding through the harsh and challenging Danish winter month along with other topics. So sit back, relax and kick your feet up as we embark on a thrilling and insightful conversation with the incredible Michael Merkov. But before delving into the interview, let me provide you with a quick rundown of what a lead-out man's role is, especially if you're new to cycling or haven't encountered the term before. And if you already know what a lead-out man is, you can use the chapter links in the show notes or just fast forward to around five minutes to embark on the interview with Michael. A lead-out is the process in which a team sprinter is strategically delivered to the final of a race by his teammates in optimum condition to be able to execute his speciality and explosive sprint for the victory. It happens in certain stages of Grand Tours and shorter stage races, but also in one-day races where the parkour favors a sprinter and is an extremely technical piece of tactical maneuvering. A lead-out train will ride in formation, with the riders involved taking turns to lead and each having a specific role. The unit protects and shields its sprinter until the moment is right for the sprinter to jump and unleash the sprint. Shading the sprinter from the wind and letting them draft for as long as possible, the lead-out can achieve one of its two main goals, which is allowing the sprinter to save up to 30% of energy, even in the most demanding and brutal of finishes. The second primary goal of a lead-out is to position the sprinter perfectly. Lead-out riders exert extraordinary physical efforts and combined with their ability to identify the right gaps and positions, allowing them to swiftly anticipate the unfolding moves. This process makes the lead-out a unique and complex endeavor. Now you might be wondering, 
how does the lead-out train unfold? Well, as the finish approaches in a pro race, the pace rises dramatically, often reaching up to 60 or 70 kilometers inside the final kilometers as the tension rises and the various leadouts from different teams compete for position. Once inside those 500 meters, the final leadout rider, in this case Michael Merkov, then takes over and will be doing one of two things, either cracking up the pace until a full-on sprint unleashes and he or she drops off or to get the sprinter into the perfect position in a now crowded bunch which is moving fast and furiously. Finally, the last move is down to the sprinter. They have to decide when to open their effort and kick for the sprint. Usually this happens with just 150 and 200 meters to go when the sprinter will jump off their last lead out rider's wheel and straight onto the wind or will jump onto the wheel of a competitor to get one last slingshot into the crucial final meters. If you're curious to see how all of this is unfolding, I'll drop a link in the podcast notes to a villain video taking us through the last 300 meters of the 2019 Ride London race, where Michael leads his former teammate Elia Viviani to victory, dropping him off at around 150 meter mark. Hi, Mikael. Thank you for joining us today on the Castelli Show. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm all fine. Your accomplishments in the world of cycling are truly inspiring. Three-time Danish road race champion, stage winner at La Vuelta, and widely considered the best lead-out man in the business. But you're also a rock star on the track with Olympic Madison gold in Tokyo, four world championship gold medals and one at the European Championship. With your remarkable journey in the Madison discipline, which is known for being one of the most dramatic and hectic track events, the same chaos and intensity of a mass road sprint can be quite similar. Absolutely. Over the years, I really start to, to compare a Madison with a, with a bunch sprint as well, uh, because it's, it's both uh, a discipline in cycling where it demands a lot of the riders in terms of having an overview of what is happening, not only with yourself, but also with all the the guys you're racing against, uh, but also you need to be really skilled to, to, to find a way and and just to be able to to navigate in, in chaos, that's the same for, for Madison and for bunch sprints. As a lead-out man, your ability to bring your sprinter to the finish line with such ease is often praised by your former and current teammates and sport directors. Can you share some insights into the mental and tactical aspect of your role during those critical moments in a race? Oh well, I, I think that maybe I have it as a as a human gift, maybe because I also feel I'm like that in in private life. Uh, as more difficult my situation is, as more calm I will actually be. So, for example, at home if, when when we have three kids and everything running into to problems with with sick kids and or we are running late or whatever, uh, that's that's where I'm actually a most calm and and maybe just focused on, on, on the target. I think uh, the main thing is to always have the eyes on the target and not on everything around you. So what if plan A isn't working out or you're short on lead out men in the lineup coming into the last one or two kilometers? How do you improvise? Do you try to use the advantage of jumping onto other lead out trains? Well, coming into a bunch sprint, I kind of know who are we sprinting against, which teammates do they have, uh, how strong of a lineup do the other team have. So I have kind of a, I have an idea of how to navigate. 
and then then when when we are there in the situation and let's say that I lose one or two teammates too early too early than unexpected uh, then I need to have a, a plan B and it's not that I have a written down plan B but it's more like my instincts tells me that okay I see this team over there this is a, a strong team and they are good organized so that's the team who's gonna bring us further so uh, it's more about like having analyzed the race before and being able to to use that information in the heat of a moment what about other teams do they try to block you out knowing that you can be a significant threat mm, i don't feel that somebody's blocking me out maybe i feel sometimes that actually they they give me a bit of a space because they usually know if if they if they find the quick step train they have a good chance to sprint for the win uh, victory in the race so so many times uh, we are marked uh, and I also happened a few times in the sprint that that 500 meters to go everybody was looking at, at me or at us waiting what what are we gonna do and uh, yeah it's, it's, it's qu quite rare in a bunch sprint because normally it's just also the finish line but I had a few times that I had the feeling that everybody was waiting for us and and we could actually give us time to get organized well, Michael, it's fascinating to see how your decision-making process unfolds during the last few kilometers of the race. How frequently does your team, Sudel Quickstep, train the lead-out train during practice to fine-tune the coordination and almost synchronization in the last few kilometers of the race? We don't train it much. Normally, uh, on December training camp and January training camp, we have a chance to 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 work on the lineup and, and, and feel the speed of each other. Um, but I really believe that the only way that you can train a lead out is in a race. And that's why I'm strongly believing that if you have a top sprinter that you're riding for, it's very important that that, that sprinter have his riders with him uh, in many races. So that you not just meet for, let's say, the Tour de France, which is the most important in a year, but you do many races before as a practice to to hit the the big target. You're definitely one of the best artists when it comes to being the best lead out person. I mean, you provide a secure and smooth ride for your sprinter, sitting on your wheel that can trust you to guide them through the gaps and deliver them safely to the last 150 meter mark before they will jump off your wheel and straight into the wind and hopefully the victory. This trust is a crucial element of your success. Can you tell us more about the importance of trust and how it affects your performance as a lead-out man? But I think that's also one of my main focuses is, is to gain the, the confidence from the sprinter that I'm working with. So I'm, I'm putting a lot of effort into knowing the sprinter and, and getting a personal relationship with him even so that I know that he or he know he can trust me in, in the very difficult situations where it's all about his Palmaras and his career, he, he needs to trust me and not uh, go his own way. So I, I, re I truly believe that many of the success I had with the many sprinters is, is because I, I, I got that trust from the sprinter. The level of trust you inspire among your teammates is remarkable. Another key aspect of your role is the extensive research you undertake before races studying the Roadbook, Villa Viewer or Google Street View. Do you conduct this research individually or is it a collaborative effort with your fellow teammates? And how does this preparation influence your performance on the road later? That really depends a lot on, on my teammates. Some teammates, they just show up and, and they do whatever they're told. 
but of course I have teammates who is also very interested in, in the details and how we can do the best possible lead out also our sport directors do a, a big job and I like to do it as well because then when we meet and we, we talk about the final maybe my sport directors see it in one way and I see it in a different way and then we can talk about what's actually going to happen for me uh, to, to gather as many information uh, before just makes increasing the chances of, of hitting it right. Given the ever-changing conditions on the road, decisions often need to be made on the fly. How much freedom do you and your fellow teammates have to make these decisions during a race, especially when weather conditions and wind directions may differ from the initial race plan provided by the sports directors? They also really respect that, that we as a rider, we are the only ones who can feel what is necessary, you know, when do we need to increase the speed, when do we maybe need to hold off a bit, uh, when can we wait because the wind is strong from, from the face. What I really believe that works for me is trusting my instinct when I'm there on the last case. So normally I tell my teammates when we're coming into the sprint roughly what I think we should do when we know how the finish is and how the, the, the competitors are. Um, but I really try to let have a, a, such an open plan that I can follow my instinct also in the moment. We all know that the power and speed generated during those bun springs are super high, like 15, 1600 watts and 65, 70 kilometers an hour speed. How many watts are you typically generating during a sprint? Oh, well, those numbers uh, vary quite a lot. Myself, I won a, a stage in the Welter years ago on 1150 watts, and so when I when I tell that to, to guys, they are they are they are thinking that I was not even sprinting because it's not so much compared to what the big guys can push. Uh, but I know it's not all about the, the the peak power, and and also for me, the quality that I have as a leadout man is that I can produce a good part above 1,000 watts for more than 20 seconds if it's necessary. Um, and, and, a, and a sprinter, you know, some they push 1800 watts, some can win sprints on 1300. So, so those numbers is, is not so important for me. Uh, the most important is which speed you can reach. Correct. Maintaining a high and consistent speed is crucial. As the sprinters patiently wait, sheltering from the wind to save energy and watching everyone for the first sign of their rivals launching. What motivated you to join Quick Step back in 2018 and what has your experience been like with the team so far? Well, first of all, I felt extremely lucky and, and proud that I got the chance to join the team in 2018 after two years with Alexander Kristoff at, at Katusha, where I kind of started as a, as a lead-out man. Um, then I got in here and I was really back in the queue. I had to work my way up. Uh, but I was very lucky I joined a team on the same time as uh, Elia Viviani and, and we got a very good uh, relationship up going from the first race of the year and first race, uh, uh, first year I won uh, with him 10 races so I really, I proved my point as, as a lead out man for him and I also got, uh, I developed as a rider to get into this team who had all this knowledge about bunch sprints so um, I think that was just the, the perfect step for me in my career to join this team and, and I think from 18 we, we really developed together and, and yeah, still keep on uh, this uh, momentum as a, as a sprint team. Your remarkable career has inspired many. 
and young cyclists aspire to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give to upcoming cyclists who wish to excel in the art of lead out and become successful like you? I think the best advice I can give is just uh, keep focusing on yourself and, and keep working on whatever you do. Um, that's pretty much what I did because uh, I was never that, that bright talent who was supposed to be a professional bike rider even. But uh, I just with the tip of my nails got a contract in 2009 with, with Bjarne Ries and Saxobank and, and then I, I proved my point and I got uh, extended my contract and I kind of happen to grow uh, every year like that uh, and I've been everywhere, I've been a part of a classic team, I've been a part of a, a domestic team around Alberto Contador uh, as a semi-climber. Um, I had the Polka Dot jersey in the Tour de France myself uh, and the last couple of years I'm, I'm uh, more as, as a sprinter, as a lead out and as, as well I'm competitive on the track so I, I've been pretty much around I would say. Michael, let's get off the pro cycling chat for a bit. After a few years living in Tuscany, you and the family decided to move back to Denmark, where the cold and wet winter months can be harsh to get through, but also harden you as a cyclist. Yeah, I used to live in Italy, and that was like a paradise as a pro bike rider. Uh, you had nice weather almost every day the year round. But I moved in 15 back to Denmark, and, and there I really knew that I had to uh, find different way to, to challenge myself because the, the weather and the winter can be really rough in Denmark. A lot of wet uh, condition, cold conditions. Escaping the wind chill and the wet roads in winter time, I would usually grab my mountain bike and go into the woods and do most of my training there. Indeed, uh, I started on a cross bike to do gravel, which is, uh, which is a new thing today, but um, I did it for, for many years. I, I find all the big uh, gravel uh, parts uh, around Copenhagen and I actually managed to do quite long rides without stopping for red light which is already a quite of a achievement when you live in Copenhagen. Do you cross train in any other sports activities during winter such as mountain biking, running, swimming to diversify your training routine? Oh, well I, I actually really like to, to do different kind of, of training because uh, yeah, an average week of training as a, as a pro rider is between 20 and 25 hours. So if you have to do all of these hours uh, on a bike in, in one degree and, and rain, it's, it's, it's a very long winter. But I, I challenge it with doing quite some running. Uh, I do gym. Uh, I go in the forest on my, on my gravel bike, even sometimes on a mountain bike. And then the hours on the road bikes will be less because I do so many other things. So I really enjoy the winters to have that uh, different that variation in my training. That's good too. It's good to detach yourself a little bit from, you know, in wintertime from cycling. Michael, you have full access to Castelli's Rosa Corsa lineup products, innovated to perform at high speeds and protect cyclists from the elements during wet and cold training rides. What's your go-to Castelli winter kit for staying warm and comfortable during training in the Danish climate? Well, I would say actually the Alpha jacket. Uh, I say it to everybody who wants to listen actually because it's, it's such a heavy jacket that you can have on even in the coldest condition. When you live in Denmark and, and winter can be rough, four hours in rain and one degree, it's not waterproof but it, also the water is not coming through. It's not like a rain jacket but it still keeps me dry and, and warm. So, so for me the, the, the Alpha jacket is the, is the best cycling product I, I ever had. It, it, it always helped me and, and especially living in Denmark. 
but you can also have it on in a, in a warmer condition. So actually when you have such an alpha jacket, you are covered in any aspect of, and different to all the other winter jackets I had in the past, like let's say it's five or 10 degrees and you have it on, I will not get sweaty and, 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 and wet inside because it's, it's such a good material who can also breathe. So, uh, I mean, when I moved back in 15, uh, first thing I did was ordering a big package of Castelli clothing to, to, to manage my winters. So, uh, for sure, Castelli, they, they helped me through uh, many cold winters in Denmark. That's good to hear. Having access to all Castelli's aero road suits, which suit is your go-to speed suit for racing, depending on the race course and conditions? Well, for me, the most important is obviously the sprint stages, and that's often very fast, flat stages. Uh, could also be with some hills, but anyway, it's decided at the end where you want to be uh, as fast as possible and, and break the wind as good as possible. So, like, yeah, for sure, the fastest suit we have is the BTW, and I really enjoy it to put that on. It's really tight, uh, and when I put it on, I feel really aero. So when I put the BTW suit on, I also feel like really racing mood and, and looking forward to, to get into a bunch sprint. I completely agree with you also because with the BTW, there are huge error gains and what savings when the race speed is high and especially doing those chaotic fast sprints when you guys are going 70 kilometers an hour. And a quick note for our listeners who cares about marginal gains and error performance, what's particularly exciting about the BTW speed suit and all the other performance enhancing products that Castelli supplies to Sudel Quickstep is that even amateur cyclists can enjoy the exact same error advantages that we provide to our professional cyclists through the Castelli Savicu Corsa custom team program and inline collection. So head over to a website for more information. What does dreaming mean to you? as a professional cyclist, but even just as a cyclist, also when you were an amateur? I don't think I was much of a dreamer myself, <laughs> so uh, I cannot paint that, uh, that uh, pink picture. But I always had uh, quite high ambitions, but also very realistic ambitions. And that's, it can actually sound quite boring, but uh, I think that's what brought me far, because uh, I was never dreaming about being world champion or Olympic champion and winning the Tour de France but in the end it actually happened for me on the track and I have also now been a part of many stage wins in the Tour de France which was also kind of a, a dream or a realistic dream for me so um, yeah, I, I always had realistic goals and dreams with me. You are 38 years of age, your longevity in the sport is truly impressive. Looking ahead How much longer do you see yourself continuing as a professional cyclist? And what aspects of being a pro cyclist bring you the most pleasure and excitement, keeping the passion alive in your career? Well, already a few years back, I thought now I'm gonna take it year by year. Uh, I feel I achieved a lot. I've been everywhere. I tried all the races I want to try, but I really enjoy so much still being a bike rider. I enjoy the, the daily training. I'm enjoying to be in shape. And most of all, I really enjoy to, to compete. So one of the best signs I know is when I go to the track in, in Copenhagen for, uh, for a, a night of racing. And before I going there, I can still feel that I'm nervous and I'm uh, making my, preparing my bike. Uh, when I feel that density inside, I know that I'm still doing the right thing. And also I'm 
forever uh, excited about the bunch prints because none of the bunch prints is the same. So every single bunch print is different. It's different riders we're riding against, the different parkour, it's different teammates you have. Uh, everything is always different. So I'm constantly uh, inspired by the next bunch print. If you have to pick one special moment in your career, what would that be? That would be when I raised my arms in Tokyo winning the Olympic gold medal. Why? Because I, I achieved many things that I'm very proud of. I didn't win as many races as Cavendish or many other colleagues I had. But uh, I, I want to say that, that all that I won, I'm extremely proud of. So that's from the stage I had in the Vuelta, from the Copenhagen Six Days uh, World Championships titles. Danish championship titles, um, but I'm really proud of it all. But uh, of course, the, the outstanding one is the, the Olympic gold medal. Yeah, that was that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, and no, I agree. Personally, I have a lot of favorite Michael Malkov moments in my book, but one that really stands out is the one that you also mentioned earlier during the Tour de France, where you rode in the breakaway in the polka dot jersey. I still remember the photo with you in the solo breakaway cutting through those sunflower fields. Michael, it's evident that you are a master when it comes to optimizing your bike performance. You take great care in fine-tuning every aspect, including your clothing and equipment, to gain any advantage you can. I'm curious, do you often find yourself readjusting your bike even after the mechanics have set it up or do they generally fine-tune everything to ensure it's spot-on and precisely tailored to your preferences, including your spare bikes? Oh, well, actually, I always also spend a lot of time to, to know my mechanics um, and to know how they work and, and how they, they work on the bikes. And I try not to adjust myself because in the end it's, it's their bikes. Um, but I always check my bike really well before riding on it and if I have any remarks I will always ask to get it uh, adjusted and uh, sometimes I'm afraid to be uh, one of the riders who is a bit of pain in the ass uh, but on the other hand it's, it's, it's also a matter of uh, safety um, that you know that whatever you're riding on is, is tightened well and uh, gear is, is, is adjusted in, in the right way uh, and it's also a performance uh, aspective. So I think all mechanics I met in McCarry, they always respected that I'm very uh, detailed about my equipment and they're always happy to, to help me. And your product feedback is invaluable for us. Your specific and clear vision about what you want and how we can improve the Castelli products is a key to the success of the perfect partnership of a performance-enhancing clothing brand as Castelli. It's making it an absolute pleasure to work with you. You're always available and wants to help fine-tuning everything. Not only Castelli, but also the other partners of the team and cycling brands make better products. When you are at a stage race or a grand tour or just a training camp, what do you usually do in the evening after dinner? Do you read books, watch some Netflix or what do you usually do to slow down the mind? I'm actually most on my social medias uh, and actually uh, I kind of hate the social medias when I'm at home because there I really want to be a dad and a husband with my family so there I always try to put it away but uh, I actually found that the social media is it's, it's a very good thing when I'm traveling and when I'm uh, away because it's something that you can look at for, for five minutes or for one hour and you have to kill time. Um, sometimes you can be a bit stressed if you want to see a movie and the movie is longer than the time slot that you have. 
So, so actually the social media is, a, is an easy way just to scroll down through whatever's coming up. And I also feel that that's, a, that's also a way to, to get news. So it's a bit the same like, you know, reading whatever newspaper. Uh, so, so also you get a bit informed um, of what's going around other places than in the cycling world. Finally, let's conclude this episode with some quick round of questions. Do you prefer cobbles or gravel roads? I like both. <laughs> <laughs> I like cobblestones in a race, but I also I also enjoy the the gravel. Okay, I have to say cobblestones if it's if we talk about a race. Okay, crosswinds or mountains? Crosswind. <laughs> Training or racing? Racing. <laughs> of course, that's precisely why you're considered the best lead-out man in the business and being a professional cyclist. It was great having you on the pod and catch up with you in person again. Thank you for your time and I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you. You too. And thanks for having me. Thanks to Michael Markov for joining us on the Castelli Show and telling us about his long cycling career and how he turned himself into the best lead-out man of the sport his favorite Castelli products for riding through the harsh winter in Denmark, and his favorite race suits. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe, give us a five-star rating to help us be seen by other cyclists in the algorithms. And if you have a Castelli product-related question or topic you would like us to take up on a future episode, email us through the contact form on the Castelli website, And I'll also drop the email address in the podcast notes together with the other important links from this interview with Michael Merkov. Thanks again, everyone, and see you soon.